please join with me in prayer. Almighty God, as I have the joy of preaching and proclaiming the grace of God, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit. Lord, undoubtedly, in this room, there are those who are struggling with their own guilt. I pray that Your grace would wash over their souls and remind them how much You love them and how completely forgiven they are in Jesus Christ. God, there are those who are struggling with assurance of salvation. God, I pray that Your grace would root and ground them in Jesus Christ. That they would have a knowledge a certainty that You love them and that their salvation is assured and certain in Jesus Christ. Father, there are those who struggle with self-dependence. I pray, God, that You would um, cut them from those anchors of dependence on self, that they would be set adrift from themselves to find true, um, a true anchor, uh, an anchor for their soul in Jesus Christ. God, there are others who pridefully take... Um, a refuge in their own merits, in their own goodness and good works. God, I pray that Your grace would destroy them this morning. Destroy their self-confidence in order that they might have no other refuge than Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray this in His name. Amen. So we have been moving through the um, the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, these solas represent the basic basics of the Christian faith. Uh, we looked at sola scriptura, scripture alone. Then we looked at sola fide, um, faith alone. Then we looked at solas Christos, Christ alone. This week we are looking at sola gratia, grace alone. Next week we'll be looking at uh, solo deo, gloria, for God's glory alone. So when we say grace alone, we mean that uh, human beings contribute nothing to the salvation that God gives us. Nothing from the beginning to the end of our salvation. From the decision that God made to save, which was His decision alone to make, to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history, salvation is God's work alone. What do we mean when we say grace alone? 
Well, in its, most, in, in its most basic sense, grace alone communicates the biblical truth that salvation is God's unmerited favor to humanity in our sinful condition. In other words, grace alone is God's response to our rebellion toward Him. This means that grace alone, or rather our salvation, is because it is by grace alone, is an unworthy gift that God gives us. However, in saying that it is grace alone, it's important that we don't stop there. If we stopped there, we would have an unbiblical, even a heretical definition of grace. If we stopped there by simply saying grace alone, we would be guilty of believing and preaching a false gospel. There are many churches that talk about God's grace, but they cut it off from the true gospel, from the true grace of God. Uh, in a, for instance, there's a teaching that uh, is out there that says that um, God's grace is basically His turning a blind eye to our rebellion. In much the same way that an overindulgent parent simply overlooks a child's bad behavior. Joel Osteen is an example of one such preacher who teaches this, um, this sort of heresy. He rarely mentions Jesus because for him, Jesus is not really necessary um, when it comes to salvation. I remember reading an article one time where he wrote about 12 ways to remember God during the 12 days of Christmas. So Joel Osteen, in writing this article, had 12 opportunities to mention Jesus as he went through the 12 ways that we can remember God through Christmas. And somehow or another, he failed to mention Jesus Christ at all in that article. Now, might I remind you that Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth. How do you avoid mentioning Jesus in that article? He must have had to work really hard. I know Joel Osteen tells good stories, but the Bible... Um, the Bible says he is preaching a false gospel and he is deceiving many thousands of people into thinking that Jesus is optional for salvation. Many of the mainline churches do the same thing. Not all mainline churches, but there are many, many mainline churches that have a liberal view of the gospel. Uh, they may talk about Jesus, but they mean something completely different than what the Bible means. Because the idea that God hates sin is so um, repugnant to them, or that God hates 
sin so much that He would punish Jesus is so offensive to them that they leave that out of their preaching. They believe that they make themselves acceptable to God by being moral and following the golden rule. According to them, Jesus provides salvation by providing an example for us to follow. It's a do-it-yourself religion. God's grace, according to theological liberalism of the mainline churches, teaches that God overlooks our failures and reminds us that we are inherently good people and we just need to try harder to be better. There's a sense in which God's grace is presented to help people have a a better or a healthy psychology. If you go to church, if you try to do good things, if you don't judge others, if you try and improve some of your harmful habits, then you can have an improving self-esteem. And there are even some evangelical churches that have fallen prey to this kind of thinking. Not to that degree. But when an evangelical church adopts a consumer model for attracting new members, the importance of the cross is de-emphasized. The issues that are emphasized are the day-by-day struggles. Everybody's got a grim job that they have to go to. Or everybody's got a failing marriage or a difficult marriage or have difficulties in the home. And so the content of the preaching is here's the steps you can take to um, be more successful at your job, to be happier on the job, to have a better marriage, to have a happier home. And this view of grace in these consumer-oriented churches teaches us that we're all messed up so we should not judge each other. Christ and the Gospel are addressed, but only many times as an add-on. It's not central. But then there are times that we ourselves also misuse and distort the grace of God. Have any of you sinned willfully because you know that your sins are already forgiven? I think we've all done that. I think we all do it many times. That too is a distortion of the gospel of grace. Let's look at the passage to better understand what grace is. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God brings salvation, according to the Apostle Paul here in Titus 2, verse 11. This is a very radical statement. You know, there are two races of beings that have rebelled against God. First of all, there's humanity. Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God and we all in Adam's fall have also sinned in Him. We're a fallen race of people because of Adam's sin. But there's also another 
race of beings that fell. The angels, not all angels, but many angels, um, myriads and myriads of angels. How many is that? I don't know. Many, many angels um, followed Lucifer in rebellion. And those angels never ever were presented with um, with a, a, an offer of mercy. No redemption was ever offered for them. They will forever be consigned to the pit of eternal torment. Yet God has chosen to save us. It reminds us that God was under no obligation to save us. He was no under, under no obligation to save those angels that rebelled against Him. No obligation to save us. But verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If God had chosen not to save human beings, He would have been completely justified in doing so. If God had chosen not to send His beloved Son into the world to die on the cross, it would have surely been His right not to send Jesus. But the fact that God has chosen to save us points to the to the uh, the truth that salvation is by God's grace. The grace of God brings salvation. If we were worthy of Him saving us, well, then it really wouldn't have been salvation uh, that came from God. We would have been our own saviors. No need of Jesus. The theological liberals would have been uh, been correct. The fact that God has revealed His grace in bringing salvation to us tells us a lot about God. It tells us that God has chosen to love sinners who have rebelled against Him. John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God so loved people that He sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to save us. God so loved people who rebelled against Him, He sent His own Son into the world. God so loved people that were so completely unworthy of His love that He sent His Son to die for them, to die for us. Listen to Titus chapter 3. Verses 3-7. through We were in chapter 2, but listen to chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. When the goodness and loving kindness of of, of, of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, we're sinners. Not just sinners, but as Paul vividly states it, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and desires, passing our days in malice, envy, hating, and are hated by others and hating one another. This brings up a whole other reason why salvation has to be by grace. If this is an accurate description of us, and this is the biblical uh, description of us here in chapter 3, verse 3, well, where is there any room for merit? When Paul describes how we were, he doesn't describe merit. He describes people who are enslaved to their passions and pleasures. He describes a disobedient people. Where is there any room for merit? Where is there any room for you to have a standing before God? Do you think God is obligated to open heaven to people who are described here in verse 3? Do you think that Jesus would be obligated to leave heaven and come here to earth to go to the cross for people described here in this verse? You know, if God searched the world over looking for worthy people to be saved, for Him to save, none of us would be worthy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, if you were placed between on a continuum between the devil over here and God over here, and we were placed where we should uh, be based on our morality, we would be much closer to the devil than we would be from God because God is infinitely holy. In other words, we're unworthy. Completely, totally, utterly unworthy of God's salvation. Therefore, our salvation, if we are going to have salvation at all, must be by God's grace. What motivated God to bring salvation to an unworthy people? The only thing that motivated Him to bring salvation was His grace. He simply chose to love us. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8, through eight, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we were weak, we were ungodly. And then he continues, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God took all the initiative. God took all the initiative in loving us even 
while we were His enemies, even while we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even while we were unworthy of His salvation. In fact, and I've said this before, when you look at God loving us and sending His Son to the cross to to suffer for us, it almost appears as if He loves us more than He loved His own beloved Son because He sent His Son to die that we might live. I'll say this, He, he loves us no less than His Son. God's love for unworthy, rebellious sinners is the foundation for choosing to save us at all. Continuing on with why grace has to be grace. I've not really described the full depth of the rebellion that we find ourselves in. I read verse 3. Two weeks from from today we'll be in... uh, total depravity, Lord willing, as we go through the five, the, the, the five doctrines of grace. And we'll be able to see in more detail uh, our true nature outside of Jesus Christ and our true unworthiness of being saved by God at all. We're dead in our sins before we came to Christ. We were enemies of God before we came to Christ. We were so willingly rebellious that we would never have chosen to love God on our own. John chapter 1, verses 10-13 through 13. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. In other words, the only way we would ever choose God is we've got to be born of God. In other words, we've got to be reborn. We've got to be regenerated. We've got to be raised from the dead spiritually and given life by God. We've got to be raised from the dead spiritually and given faith to reach out and embrace Christ. We've got to be raised from the dead spiritually that we would even love God. But He loves us so much that He's willing to take all the initiative for us. Our salvation's got to be by grace because we are totally dependent on God totally dependent on God to even know we need to be saved. Totally dependent on God to trust in Him because faith, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is a gift from God as part of our salvation. You know, I haven't even mentioned Jesus yet. I don't want to be Joel Osteen, so I want to mention Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, as it talks about um, Christ in verse 14, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14 here in Titus chapter 2 is all about Jesus. What He has done 
for unworthy sinners. He gave Himself for us, it says here in verse 14. He redeemed us from all unlawlessness, it says here in this verse. He purified us, it goes on to say. He purchased us to be His own possession. He transformed us to be zealous for good works. You know, I think of my own life before I became a Christian. I became a Christian during my freshman year in college. And I can very distinctly remember how all my thoughts were focused around me. You know, I was my own, um, my own evil trinity. Me, myself, and I. That was the God I worshipped. And now, not because I'm a wonderful person, but because of the grace of God, I have been transformed to be one who is zealous for good works, even when it's costly. And I can't brag about that because I am what I am only by the grace of God. So verse 14, if it's all about Jesus as He's talking about our salvation, then what did we contribute? You know, I'm willing to say we contributed one thing in our salvation. Our Lord Jesus Christ is full of righteousness. He's full of life. He's full of salvation. We are full of sins. We are full of death. We are full of damnation. And on the cross, an exchange took place. On the cross, Jesus went there to be our substitute. On the cross, Christ gave us all of His righteousness, all of His life, all of His salvation. What did we contribute to Him? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. We gave Him all our sins. We gave Him our death. We gave Him our damnation. And He was punished in our place. That's all we contributed. Sin, death, and damnation. We gave it to Jesus. In exchange, He gave us His life. His Forgiveness, His righteousness, His salvation. And when we trust in Him by faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. And we are united to all His benefits. You know, I know every one of you sitting in this room, even some of you that I've only met today, you have past sins that you are thoroughly ashamed of. It might be one or two things in your past. And you think, would God really love someone who is able to do that? Is God really able to love someone who has done that or done those things multiple? Yes. God is not only able to love you, but in that exchange, He has replaced every wicked thing with all His righteousness, with all His life, 
with all His salvation. And it was a joyful exchange. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You were His joy when, when He was on the cross suffering for our sins. He loved you that much that He went to that cross that He bore your sins, that He bore those things that are so shameful in our minds that we we, we can't even bear to think of them. That's how much He loved us. For the joy set before Him, us, and He has replaced all your wickedness with all His righteousness, all His life, all His salvation. And then, as we speak of God's grace. The grace of God changes us. And I'll be a little quicker here. Verses 12 and 13. It says, I'll start with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, uh, or to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, you're a new person. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and now you're being trained to get rid of and renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions and to live different lives, self-controlled, upright lives. Well, let me ask you, those of you who have been transformed, did you bring these things about in your life? Did you, by your self-discipline, work your way up out of worldliness and uh, sensuality and ungodliness? Could you bring these things about? You know, I tried. Uh, when I got off to college and I began uh, trying to be a Christian on my own, what I ended up finding out was I was really a hypocrite. I'd do the church things and then I would continually serve myself. Finally, when I realized that I was such a big hypocrite, I cried out to God, God, I don't deserve to be saved. Please save me. All of a sudden, my life began to change. All of a sudden, my desires were, were different. I went home and my mom, the, the changes were so great, she thought I had joined a cult. What happens is, is when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your soul. And He begins changing your desires. He begins changing your life. He changes you, makes your desires to be more like Jesus Christ. And He breaks your heart when you sin against Him. Has your life been changed? That's a sign of God's grace at work in your life. Well, I want to make several applications here and I'll try and make them quickly. First of all, the grace of God means that you will live grateful lives. Look at who you were before you became a Christian. If you can remember back that far. Look at where you are now and all the good things that God has brought into your life. 
Wow. I am profoundly thankful to God. Christians who are willing to sacrifice ease of life, to sacrifice personal wealth, to sacrifice worldliness. And then they don't look back. Why don't they look back? They only look forward to Jesus Christ because they are so thankful for what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. When I was a student in high school and going then into college, I didn't want to give up anything. I wanted to experience the whole world, everything that the world had to offer. And I know that there are young people that may be having that same temptation. You might be thinking about everything that you might have to give up. But when you embrace Jesus Christ, you realize that you're not giving up anything. Rather, you are gaining a relationship with the God of gods and the Lord of lords. In fact, the only thing you're giving up is a lot of heartache. You know, I drive past the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting place and the Narcotics Anonymous meeting place. And I think about all the heartache, all the regrets that are in that building. And it could have been avoided had they come to Jesus Christ and realized that God alone is the one who is able to satisfy the human soul. That Jesus Christ is able to fully and completely give us all the satisfaction that anybody could ever want. And so there's a, a, a profound thankfulness, a gratitude. Secondly, there's also the, a humility that comes with understanding the grace of God. You know, the only reason you're saved, the only reason I'm saved, the only reason I have any hope in the world is God chose to save me. I don't have any righteousness on my own. Neither do you. You could never produce it. Um, any righteousness on your own. You could never stand before God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy. You are utterly dependent upon God from first to last. Coming to church, dressing yourself up, trying to do the right things, put a little extra money in the, the offering plate. God says, that won't get you anywhere in your standing with Him. Being like Martin Luther, climbing the steps of, um, of the, the, the great churches in Rome on his hands and knees, trying to earn enough or be repentant enough before God. God says, that won't get you any standing uh, before Him. It's when you come to the end of yourself, when you realize you have nothing to offer except your sins, and that you are unworthy before God, that's the only time. When you cry out to God, God save me a sinner. That's when He will receive you. Because there's a true humility that comes with the grace of God. If you're unwilling to be humble, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? He didn't come to save the righteous. 
but sinners. Thirdly, the grace of God forms a gracious character in your life. Think about Jonah. He uh, was told to go preach the gospel to Assyria. He said, no God, because you are gracious and you will save those people. And God taught Jonah just how gracious he was. And it's a good word to us. We are receiving grace that we don't deserve. God forgives us 70 times 7. You know, I've been in counseling with uh, a spouse who just checks out. You know, I've had enough. I'm leaving town, not even telling my spouse. Or I've had enough with that, that bum or, or that lady. Well, that's inconsistent with the grace of God. You were forgiven by a God who should have checked out on you. And so the grace of God should be forming in you a gracious character. It also, the grace of God, forms your identity. You're not any longer an enemy of God. You are not any longer an unworthy sinner headed to hell. You're still a sinner, but your identity is I am a child of God. I am loved by God so much that He sent Jesus to die for me. Life clocks you upside the head. Instead of thinking, woe, woe is me, you think, I'm a child of God who loves me even through the hardships of life. And then lastly, the grace of God forms assurance in us. Because our salvation doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon God and His faithfulness to Himself. You don't have to ask, am I doing enough? Am I being sincere enough? Oh God, I fell again. Will You finally turn Your back upon me? No. Your salvation is rooted and grounded in God and in His faithfulness to His grace in faithfulness to His Son. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, width or breath, nothing under all creation is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord as we pray together. Lord, I know I've been long in this sermon, but I've spoken for this long time on the grace of God. And I pray that this joyful Word would minister to the souls of Your people who are experiencing the grace of God for themselves in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for that proud soul who has not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, bring humility, profound humility, so that they would understand that they have no hope other than and in Jesus Christ and Your gracious salvation to them in Him. We pray in His name. Amen.